Good morning. How y'all doing? It's Sunday. And that means it's time for Dono Frustuk. The podcast, the event. Your favorite place to go when you're hungover and need coffee in Neukölln. Uh, today, at Donau Frischtuck, we will have Luke Leafield and Prita. What I'm going to present today for the podcast is a review of the last five concerts we've had, because we had quite a lot of action over the summer, even though we were sort of taking a summer pause. So, uh, this podcast will feature a lot of artists, Justin Cusack, Jane Berwig, Jana Bavik auf Deutsch. Uh, who else we got on here? A lot of quality artists. Mute Swimmer, Natalie Childress doing a reading. Lindsay Phillips from Australia. All the info for the other artists. Links to their SoundCloud, Facebook, Hello, whatever pages are on the podcast site. So enjoy. And if you're not doing anything this morning, come on down to Donau 115, Donaustrasse 115, by the Neukölln Rathaus stop on the U-Bahn U7. Join us. But if you like staying at home, listen to the podcast and be jealous that you're not there having awesome bagels with us. All right. See y'all there. We're going to start things off with a podcast with a performance from... Jana Bevik. Um, it's called Etwas Länger Liegen Bleiben. Manchmal noch schwer zu unterscheiden. 
immer noch sehr gut leiden. Ich hoffe, wir werden Freunde bleiben. Und wenn ich dich dann frag, wirst du immer noch für mich da sein. Auch wenn wir jetzt nicht mehr zusammen sind. Sagst du, Kleine, mach dir nicht so viele Sorgen. Du wirst sehen, wir werden uns bestimmt auch morgen noch verstehen. Scheint perfekt und es ist manchmal noch schwer zu unterscheiden. Oh, ich mag dich immer noch. Sehr gut leiden. Ich hoffe, wir werden Freunde bleiben. Vielen Dank. Stony heart of winter to the deep descent to the tomb. I leave to you my solitude and song. To the fortitude of marriage and me on I bequeath you the solids of the sun in memory a white veil of light shall wash over me In memory, 
earth open wide that it should receive this hapless soul departing the world this night this hapless soul departing the world this this hapless soul Departing the world this night This hapless soul There were times when I felt pity hours I have scorned nothing more will I regret now but the breaking of the dawn thank you Not to you, not to anyone. With those words, Smith took out his carabiner, removed the car key and the apartment key from the rest, and handed them over. As a final gesture, he took off his wedding ring and dropped it into my hand. Then he walked away, silently. It was June 3rd. We had been married for 885 days, and just like that, it was coming to an end. 
Of course, it wasn't really just like that because it had been building up from the beginning, intensified over the final few months. Like many things that fall apart, there were indicators leading up to the dissolution of our marriage long before the breaking point arrived. The truth is, I married someone I loved, but love is not enough to make a relationship work. In our case, something fundamental was broken from the start, and it was trust. Smith had been cheating on me since the beginning, and I knew it. The early revelations were explained away as girls he was dating before we met, but never officially broke it off with. Later in the relationship, as the wedding came closer, he explained them away as emotional connections, but never something physical. On and on with the list of excuses, and more and more I lied to myself that it didn't matter, that he was marrying me after all. For some reason, these indiscretions never threatened me, perhaps because I knew about them. But it was the lie that I could not corner him in that scared me the most. For a few weeks prior, he acted sketchy and shifty. And when I confronted him directly, asking him, did you fuck her? He was defiant rather than in denial. That's none of your business, he had replied. It was a response that, although it confirmed my worst fear, was still lacking in substantial evidence required to move forward. The day he left me was the day I finally had the proof. My raging jealousy, unstable emotions, and unfounded suspicions could no longer be brushed aside as signs pointing to my insecurity, for I had the phone bills documenting late night texting, the emails professing her love for him, the corroborating admissions from family members and friends that they hadn't been with him when he claimed they had. And so I told him that I knew, and while I choose to stay and fight for our relationship, it was a no-brainer for him, flight. After all, if he truly didn't want to be married as he claimed, this revelation gave him the out that he so desperately wanted. After he left, I called my parents, and through choked up words, I told them what happened. They insisted I shouldn't be alone and made the 30-minute drive from their home in Santa Rosa to mine in Petaluma, bringing me back home with them. Later that night, friends came over with beer and chocolate, offering their condolences and confusion. But the confusion wasn't regarding us breaking up so much as how it happened. I always thought you would be the one to leave him, said one friend. And it could have been foreshadowing, because although he instigated our end, I was the one left to deal with cleaning up the mess left in its place. The first thing I did was pack up all the love notes and letters, the lunch bag post-its and refrigerator reminders, the ticket stubs and postcards, and put them in a box. At first it was a simple task, because I kept them in obvious places, like my wallet or sock drawer. But as time went on, they slowly revealed themselves to me in the unassuming locations. One was at the bottom of my purse, another under the bed, a folded up piece of paper in the pocket of a sweatshirt. And I tortured myself, reading those notes one by one as I came across them, their very existence belying my reality. To that box of words, I added photo booth strips, the ones of us kissing that we took every year at the fair, the half-eaten containers of orange Tic Tacs, his favorite candy, one in there too. And while I couldn't listen to music in the weeks that followed, I still took the CDs that reminded me of him, albums by the Black Heart Procession and the Velveteen, as well as mixtapes I made him over the years, and added them to the collection one by one. Eventually, as I began incorporating music back into my life, the songs that once seemed to be the most perfect manifestation of my love for him were rotated out to make way for songs with more fitting themes of hopelessness, of breakups, of loneliness, of despair. Listening to anything that I remotely associated with him made me sob uncontrollably, regardless of my surroundings. The music had no regard for my feelings and made no distinction between the public and private spheres. I could be in the grocery store, driving on the freeway, 
or in a movie theater, and upon hearing a song, the association would make me break down and cry. All these things existed in the back of my closet, hidden away but still painfully within reach, and I knew they were there, but for the most part chose to ignore them. Of course, there were other things too big to place inside of a shoebox, like bottles of Jameson that we used to drink from those first few months together, the girl from the balcony where we had barbecues, my baby blue brother typewriter, which gave birth to all the love notes. These things were relegated to cluttered shelves and corners, and although I saw them regularly, I refused to enjoy them. I began erasing evidence of our online existence as a couple. Photos were taken down from social networking sites. Passwords were changed. But as much as I tried, certain things couldn't be avoided. I had forgotten about our movie queue until I logged into request a video and saw everything he'd picked, still waiting patiently in line. I would feel okay until an email arrived, reminding him to pay his credit card bill, or notice that his new phone bill was ready to be viewed. Even though he got stuck with the payments, the phones, and the numbers, I still got the emails arriving in my inbox like a last word. Other things I began neglecting. All the plants died because I gave up on watering them. For the most part, the cats didn't suffer. Two of them had loved me best, and another could go either way, so they didn't notice he was gone, or if they didn't, it didn't affect their routine. Only one, the young black cat, seemed to be searching for him constantly. While it didn't manifest itself in any sort of detrimental way, I would later realize that subconsciously I had neglected that cat, denied him affection, pushed him away, and at times despised him, because he was so clearly aware of the lack that I desperately wanted to conceal and reminded me of it regularly. There were places I associated with him that I no longer wanted to visit or even see. Never again would I eat at an A&W because it was where we went for root beer floats during those hot summers in Sacramento. Never would I stay at a bed and breakfast because it was where we went on romantic getaways. Never again would I eat at Hallie's Diner or Mr. Mom's Cafe because these were our regular breakfast spots and I was all too certain he was eating at them still, taking my replacement there. Instead, I was forced to find new places to visit, to eat, to see shows, to stay, and any place would suffice, any place that didn't remind me of him. Of course, the slightly more intangible things were there too, which were the hardest to ignore, for they uncontrollably reappeared in my mind at inopportune times. I changed the sheets the day after he left because I foolishly thought it would eliminate the scent of him. Where I once slept cuddled up and close to him, I began to hate the thought of sleeping next to someone. Instead, I re relished the queen-size bed to myself. But where I had reclaimed the bedroom for myself again, I nearly forgot about the smell of cigarette that lingered always on his clothes, his fingers, and his lips. And sitting at the bar or walking downtown, the smell would drift across my path, reminding me of what it was like to be next to him. In spite of all the things I did to push Smith out of my mind, there were other things I did, some consciously, some not, that prevented me from forgetting him completely. It didn't help that I still wore my rings for months afterward. Removing them made me feel naked, so I kept them on, and even though I moved them to different, less significant fingers, they still served as a reminder of a life with him. I didn't cut off contact with him either, and the text message we shared, whether he was fighting with me over who got what, or telling me in a moment of weakness that he still loved me, reinforced the illusion that somehow things were okay, that we were just on some kind of break, that the actuality of my situation was temporary. And for months after, I still lived in the apartment we shared, only realizing a little too late that the bad energy was stifling me, because every corner of that flat was somewhere we had cooked or cleaned, talked or watched TV, fought or fucked.
greedy. Um, I'm going to play a song that's about, about Collingwood. Uh, calling with the uh, Keats, my Keats, okay. my Keats in Melbourne. I'm gonna get involved in any football, <laughs> football related. Too long, loyal to you. Too long. Technically part of Melbourne. But <laughs> My spine's on the circumvent I'm dancing with them lady boys Until high, high noon My stomach's in Paris, France In many Montagne And some smoky bar
could be I'm not that small And it could be I'm spread kind of thin But how I love that departure land And those planes and their big mighty wings Watching it all just fade away And watching it all disappear But my feet are in Collingwood And if I call your name Can you hear? Something is wrong, I can't tell Somebody must have made a mistake 
I'm still breathing with my ghost been seen around here. My face looks worn from last night. The cracks are starting to show. You're still turning your face away from me. I'm sure that somebody's in Thank you.
gently open up her blouse. Kissing that on the mouth. This lousy, blousy, open mouth. Hurry, I need to hurry 
I need to hurry back to you I need to hurry I need to hurry I need to hurry back to you Cause I have this feeling It's getting darker I need to hurry back to you Cause I have this feeling It's getting darker I need to hurry back to you Cause I have this feeling It's getting darker I need to hurry back to you Cause I have this feeling It's getting darker I need to hurry back to you Cause I have this feeling It's getting dark I need to hurry back to Stop.